Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, I loved my old neighborhood. I love my new neighborhood, but there was something special about the place where we used to live. We used to live in unincorporated Winfield. Now, I want to see how many of you live in an unincorporated area, so you're outside of kind of the city limits, okay? For those of you who don't live in an unincorporated area, you need to know this. Unincorporated is not just a location, it's a lifestyle. Uh, our neighborhood, it was like the Wild West. There was no mayor, there were no sidewalks, there were no laws, okay? You, you, no rules about what you could burn, so fires are raging all the time in our neighbor's yards, you know? People are like, I don't care if I don't have a library card. You know who owns the libraries? The government. Pure propaganda. People are like, sewers, who needs a sewer? My waste is my own. I'm not going to let some bureaucrat ship that off in a pipe to who knows where. I'm going to bury it in a tank in my yard. That stuff stays here. <laughs> Walking down the street, this guy's like, they may take our curves, but they will never take our freedom. I'm like, that's right. You know, unincorporated. I loved it. I loved it. The real reason, though, that I loved our neighborhood was the people that lived there. It was a really warm and friendly neighborhood. It was a place where people actually knew each other, and it was a place where people actually looked out for each other. But it wasn't always that way. The reason it became that sort of place was because of Charlie. Charlie was our neighbor who lived just around the corner. And Charlie was an American, but he had lived almost all of his life in some place outside of the U.S. For most of his adult life, he lived in Venezuela. And he and his wife had moved back, you know, sometime before uh, uh, us meeting them. And they were really frustrated. They were back in America and they felt like, you know, no one seems to know their neighbors here. They talked about how in Caracas they could go down their street and they knew every single person on the block. And I don't just mean they knew everybody's name. They knew everybody. They, they hung out with them. They knew their needs. They took care of each other. They were actually friends with their neighbors. And so Charlie and, and his wife, they were so frustrated when they'd lived in that neighborhood for maybe five years when we met them, that as friendly as they were, the relationship still stayed so shallow. He's like, well, none of these people actually know each other. They live near each other and they don't even know each other. He was so frustrated. The reason he was frustrated though, wasn't just because he had lived in a culture where things were different, but also because he was a Christ follower. And he knew that God made people for connection not for isolation, to be uh, interdependent, not isolated from each other. And so when he found out that my wife and I are, are Christians, he kind of brought us into his conspiracy. He, he was like, okay, we're going to get together and we're going to talk about how we can make this neighborhood the friendliest place it can possibly be. And we didn't know what was going to happen as we started to get together and pray for our neighbors and so on. But it started with this question, Charlie saying, what if, what if it didn't have to be this way? What if it could be different? My hope is that over the course of this series so far, you have already started to have that question kind of bubble up in your mind. What if things are different? What if I started to love my neighbor in the way that we're talking about? We've been talking about four practices of how to be a good neighbor. Uh, we're gonna put them up here on the screen. I want us to actually read them together out loud. Let's do this together. Meet, host, invite, serve. One more time. Meet, host, invite, serve. Now, these are very simple practices. They're not actually very difficult to do, or they're not, uh, not very complicated to do, but they might be difficult. 
But here's the question. As we're talking about these things, I hope you're imagining, okay, if I actually started to know my neighbors and have them over and to talk with them about important things and serve them, what would change? What would it look like in our neighborhood? We're going to be talking about that last practice there on the list, serving our neighbors. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. It's one of the four biographies of Jesus. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 today. The author of the book of Luke was a medical doctor. He was a guy who went and researched Jesus's life by interviewing eyewitnesses so he could give an accurate account of what happened. And he records one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Even if you are not a Bible reader, you have probably come across that phrase. It's a phrase in our culture that just means someone who helps a stranger. Uh, So we've got uh, hospitals called Good Samaritan. We've got Good Samaritan laws. And so you've probably heard that. But I wonder if you've ever actually heard the story that inspired it. Now, let me give the context for this. Uh, Jesus is in a conversation with a Bible scholar, first century Bible scholar, and they're talking about the two greatest commandments in the Bible, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything that you have, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the, re- the religious leader, the scholar here is, is kind of uh, considering this, and it dawns on him that if those are the most important things that God asks us to do, that sets the bar really, really high because he knows he doesn't do that. So he kind of tries to look for a little bit of wiggle room and he says, but Jesus, really, who is my neighbor? You know, like if I can just kind of lower the bar there, I might be able to clear it. So maybe it's not as hard as I think. This is what Jesus says, tells a story. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus told a challenging story on purpose, and we're going to let it challenge us a little bit today. We're going to let it ask us three questions. Here's the first one. What if neighbors notice? What if neighbors noticed? What would happen in our world, in our lives, in our neighborhoods if we actually noticed the needs of other people, if we actually saw what they were going through? Because you cannot start to serve your neighbor unless you know what your neighbor needs. Uh, Jesus' story starts with a man walking down a dangerous road. It's the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. Uh, They weren't that far apart, about 14 miles. That's one day's journey on foot. But Jericho and Jerusalem were about uh, 3,300 feet difference in elevation. Uh, Jerusalem is higher, uh, Jericho is lower. And so it was a rocky, twisty, dangerous road. Lots of caves and turns where uh, robbers, bandits, could hide to ambush people, which is what happens in the story. Fortunately, soon after that happens, along come a a Levite and a priest. And if you are a first century Jew, you're thinking, oh, great. These are the good guys. Thank you. I'm glad that these guys showed up because these are religious leaders. Uh, Probably they worked in the the temple, which is in Jerusalem, but they lived in Jericho. The way the system kind of worked, 
priests and Levites would have a shift of a couple of weeks at a time where they'd go into Jerusalem, do their time, they'd go back the rest of the time to their family farm and work there, and they'd sort of come in. So these guys probably uh, occasionally were traveling up and down this road to go to work. But you're, you're hearing these people come along, and you're thinking, oh, this is perfect, because who else is going to stop? But these people who teach God's law, who, who minister to people in the temple, who take care of people, surely they are going to help this man. Now, a good reading tip when you are reading any story in the Bible is to actually take a time to think about each character in the story and think, what would it feel like to be them in this situation? What would they be thinking? What would they be feeling in this? Why did they react the way they did? So we read in, in the passage, it says they saw the man, but then they passed by on the other side. You got to say, why did they do that? And, and preachers and scholars, they love to speculate about what the, the motivations for that were. Why did they walk to the other side of the road? It might have been that they thought, well, maybe that man is actually dead. And for a priest and a Levite, if you touched a dead body, it made you ritually unclean, which meant that you weren't allowed to go into the temple. You had to go through some ceremonies, some time to make sure that you were cleansed before you could go back in. So they're thinking, we're not allowed to touch a dead body. Or they might have been thinking, it's still dangerous. You know, the, the robbers, they might still be around. This is another ambush. So we're not going to go over there, stop and sort of put ourselves at risk. Or maybe they're thinking, ah, we're in a hurry. We got things to go. We got we to get back to our family or we got to get to the temple. We don't have time to stop. We don't actually know what their motivations are, why they didn't stop. Because Jesus doesn't tell us. And I think that might be on purpose. Here's why. You don't need Jesus to give you a reason. You can already think of all the reasons yourself, can't you? It, it does not take long. It, you're, you're really tempted the first time you read it to be like, I would have stopped. What, what are these guys doing? But in one, one moment, you can think of 10 reasons why it would be a really bad idea to do it. And, and so I, I was reading this this week, and I'm like, yeah, I, I bet you I would have. But then my phone rang, and I looked at my phone, and I saw it was someone. I knew this conversation was going to be complicated and difficult, and I was like, not now. And you're going to judge me, but you all know you've done that. You've all done that, right? <laughs> Which means when we look at the priest and the Levite, we say, oh, I'm that person too. I've got all those same excuses and fears and motivations in my heart that would make me avoid someone else in need. And talking about loving our neighbors this entire time and talking about it as if the challenge were a practical challenge. Like how do we meet them? How do we host them? How do we do it? But the problem for us is not the how all the time. It's just even wanting to do it. It's one of the things we have to admit. It's almost cliche to talk about uh, people who uh, in the suburbs, you know, they drive into their driveway, they go directly in their garage, close the garage, walk in their house, they never see anybody. And, and, and it's a cliche, but it's actually true. We kind of do that, don't we? But the really sad thing is we kind of do it on purpose. We don't want to get tangled up in our neighbor's business. Uh, even if we don't physically avoid our neighbors. Have you ever found yourself in a conversation just sort of making sure it doesn't get too deep, you know? Kind of skimming on the surface. It's fine to talk about things, but if it gets too personal, hey, that's none of my business, that's none of your business, and you change the subject. Sometimes we are actively avoiding getting close enough to see our neighbor's needs. It might get messy if we do. It might get costly. What keeps you from noticing your neighbors and their needs? Is it your busyness? Simply don't have time or energy to let another person into your life. Is it your fear? Is it because they're different from you? Think about the Samaritan who ended up helping this man. They were culturally different. They were religiously different. They, they would have been from different classes and groups of people. It, they would have been crossing lines that normally weren't crossed. Now, this week I was talking with someone who, in an effort to meet his neighbors, had a, a party. They had kind of a block party. 
and they had just moved into this neighborhood, so they, they, they didn't really know people. And what they didn't realize is that uh, a good portion of the neighborhood were actually immigrants from India, and many of them were Hindu. And so they had the people over to the party, and what they didn't realize is that if you're Hindu, you are most likely vegetarian, which meant there was a whole lot of taco meat left over at the end of the party. Now, in that sort of situation, that cultural difference, you, you might say, oh, whoa, 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 I, I'm nervous about that. I don't want to offend. I don't, want, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm going to know how to relate to that situation. And for many of us, when we encounter that, even though it might be as simple as a menu change, it intimidates us enough that we say, I'm just not going to try that. I, I, can, I can wave from afar. I can be friendly, but I'm not going to get close enough to get in the mess of that because we're intimidated by those differences. It might not just be a cultural difference. It might be an age difference or a difference in your kind of family situation. Maybe you have a newborn and they're empty nesters. Maybe you're divorced and they're newlyweds. Maybe you're a high school student and they're retired. The world tells us people in these different groups can be friendly, but we can't actually be friends, and so we keep our distance. But when we do that, we never actually get the chance to see what our neighbor's needs are. What keeps you from seeing your neighbors? Now, a lot of times I don't see my neighbor's needs simply because I'm not paying attention. Uh, our neighbor, Charlie, one of the things he told us to do is he said, I want you to keep your eyes and ears open when people mention things that might be tough in their life. Uh, Pastor Jared said something similar to this last week when he talked about listening when people share their pain. It, it might just be a passing comment, you know, an upcoming surgery or a kid that's struggling in school or a home repair that's costing more or taking longer than it should have. When they say those things, notice them, and instead of walking to the other side of the road, figuratively in the conversation, follow up with a question. How are you feeling about that? Who's helping you out with that? What's going on with that? Of course, it might not be something they say. It might actually be something you just observe. You've noticed that an elderly family member has moved in. Seems like they're taking care of someone. There's a car in the driveway that hasn't moved for months. Maybe an ambulance shows up at someone's house. When my wife was uh, teaching in Bartlett High School, she would uh, bring in people from different uh, career fields to talk to her students to kind of expose them to different uh, possibilities of what they might want to go into when they were adults. And so uh, one time she brought in a local fire chief who told them that a lot of times the majority of ambulance calls, 911 calls, are not for people who are seriously injured. It's for people who are isolated, alone, and afraid. It's often people who are shut in and they, they call, something simple happens, something breaks, they're, they hear a noise and they're, they're just nervous. They don't know who else to call, so they call 911. You see an ambulance show up. If it shows up more than once, you might think, ooh, uh, that, I don't want to get in their business. But maybe what that neighbor actually needs is someone who sees them, someone who notices them, someone who's willing to step forward and say, hey, do you need some help? Do you need someone to be there for you? So back to the question, what happens, what if, neighbors noticed each other, what would, what would begin to happen? We would begin to care. We would be begin to care for each other. This is the second question. What if neighbors cared? What if we actually cared? Uh, filmmakers, when they uh, design the opening scenes of a film are very, very deliberate. Because one of the things they're trying to do at the very beginning of a movie is establish which character you're supposed to identify with. They're trying to tell you this is the character that you're supposed to follow along and you're gonna view this story through their point of view. So in Toy Story, the, uh, in those movies, the very first character you see is Woody. So you know this is his story. I'm going to see the story through his thing. Uh, Iron Man, Tony Stark is the first person to talk. You'll, you'll notice this as you watch movies. Oh, they've told me this is the character I'm supposed to pay attention to. I'm supposed to follow along. Their perspective is the one that I see the story through. And usually it's the hero of the story that that happens. Jesus uses this technique in his story. Uh, he begins with this man who's walking along the road, 
who gets attacked by robbers. And before anybody else shows up on the scene, you're already seeing this story through his perspective. And for his Jewish audience, this would have been the character that they most identified with. It's just an ordinary Jewish man going about his business. They say, he's most similar to me, so I'm going to look at the story through his eyes. Now, here's the question. Is the man on the side of the road in this story, is he the hero? Is he the villain? Or is he the victim in the story? Think about it. Is he the hero, the victim, or the villain? He's the victim in the story. Who is the hero in this story? It's the Good Samaritan, right? The Good Samaritan. Jesus is telling this story so that we will act like the Good Samaritan. That's the whole point of the story. He's saying, do what that guy did. But he tells the story from the perspective of the man on the side of the road. Why does he get us to identify with the victim rather than the hero in the story? It's really important. It's because Jesus knows that you will not act like the hero in this story unless you see the world through the eyes of the victim in the story. Let me say that again. Jesus knows that you will not act like the hero in this story until you see the story, see the world through the eyes of the victim in the story. You have to see it from the side of the person in need. You know why most of us don't serve other people? It is not because we don't know that we should or we don't think it's a good idea. It's because we spend most of our time looking at the world through our perspective. It's natural, it's automatic. And so what stirs us to action, what moves us, what makes us concerned about something? It's almost always the challenges and the needs that come into our lives. But remember what the, the second greatest commandment, how it goes. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Feel about their concerns the same way you do about yours. Respond to the needs of another person with as much effort and urgency and commitment as you would respond to your own needs. It's actually a, a word for that feeling. It's found in verse 33. It says this, a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He took pity on him. And in our day, pity feels like a negative term. We, we tell people, don't, don't pity me. I don't need your pity. But the other way to translate this word, which is most of the time in the Bible, it's translated as compassion, compassion. The, the Greek word literally means intestines because that's where you feel this feeling. It's in your gut. You say, oh, you, you know that feeling when, when bad news comes in your life, you say, oh, that didn't work out. And you feel that feeling down here and you're like, oh, what are we gonna do about that? Compassion is when you feel that feeling, not about your problem, but about somebody else's problem. You say, oh, what are we going to do about your problem? In verse 37, the word used is mercy. Mercy is when we act with kindness to relieve somebody else's problem, whether it's a problem they brought on themselves or not. And this is where we need to get with our neighbors. We need to see the needs in their life, and we need to ask the question, what does it feel like to be them? What does it feel like to be an aging widower who's living alone? What does it feel like to be an immigrant just learning to speak English? What does it feel like to be someone who comes home late from work to a yard full of leaves or a snowed-in driveway? And when we ask that question, what does it feel like to be them? The, the follow-up question is automatic. We say, what would I want someone to do if I was them? What kind of neighbor would I hope I had if I was in their situation? Uh, a little while back, Michelle noticed that on one side of our property, the plants were doing really, really well. They were, they were just like growing really great and they were flourishing. And we wondered why that was because Michelle said, I, I don't usually get around to actually watering that side of the yard. And the reason she doesn't get around to watering that side of the yard is whenever she goes out to do something in the garden, three very small and very insane people follow her. And so inevitably, as she's, you know, weeding or watering or doing whatever, you know, someone's going to spray her with the hose or they're going to escape out the gate and run through the neighborhood and she's got to chase them or they're going to bring her a handful of worms or she's going to have to deal with something and it doesn't usually get done. But we've got a neighbor on that side. Her name is Marie and she often sits back on the patio 
And she watches this chaos you know, unfold with amusement, but also with sympathy. And we didn't realize this until just a couple of weeks ago, but she had seen all this and decided, you know, whenever I'm out watering my plants, I'm going to water every plant my hose reaches uh, on that side of their yard because I know she can't get around to it. And they were doing awesome. So thank you, Marie, if you, if you see this. Um, but this is what we're supposed to be doing in big ways and small ways. Put yourself in your neighbor's shoes. This is especially important if it's a neighbor that bothers you. So when you hear that baby at 3 a.m. on the other side of the apartment wall waking you up, don't say, ah, well, no, I'm so frustrated for myself. Ask yourself, what does it feel like to be those parents? But when the people next door haven't mowed their lawn in a few weeks and it, the prairie is starting to spread into your yard, ask the question, what might they be going through that makes it so that they keep putting that off, that they can't attend to that? When a mom and her teenage son get into a yelling match every time they're getting in and out of the car, ask the question, what stress might be in their life that's causing that conflict? Uh, we had a situation like this in our old neighborhood. Some new next door neighbors moved in by our house and we were excited. We we're thinking, oh, we're gonna meet some new neighbors. We're gonna be you know, really friendly with them. And when we met them, it was a, a man, a woman and their teenage son or their junior high son. And, uh, and we met them and it was a really awkward interaction the first time. Uh, we, we met the man and uh, he was kind of uh, hard to communicate with. He, he was abrasive and, and, and it, he was kind of, we also saw him kind of doing things around the property that kind of made us nervous. And we're thinking, oh man, like we, we had such high hopes of getting to know these neighbors. And now we're thinking, uh, we're just going to have to manage, make sure we don't, you know, have any weird conflicts or whatever. He actually started getting into some conflicts with people around the neighborhood. And we're thinking, oh, this is, this is going to be really, really frustrating. But then we thought about Charlie and Charlie was like, hey, listen and look for people's needs. And so we decided we were gonna get to know these, these, these folks. We're gonna find out what their story is. And this is what we found out. This man had had chronic health issues for his entire life. He wasn't very old, but uh, he had had uh, heart issues that had uh, affected not just his body, but also his mind. And it made it so that he interacted in, in unusual ways. And this is what was going on. Now, we, we realized that uh, they actually were looking at his life and they were thinking he probably doesn't have very long to live. And as soon as we realized this, and we realized this is what they're going through, and especially people moving into a new place, new neighborhood, didn't know people, our hearts turned from annoyance to compassion to say, what would it be like in their situation? What would we want our next door neighbors to do when they interacted with us? And that's how we started thinking about that. It's a really, really powerful question to ask, what would I do in their situation? It has the power to make you cross barriers you normally would not cross. I mean, think about the Samaritan. He was from a different culture than the person he helped. Uh, odds are he had less wealth and privilege in that society than the person he was helping. If they were in any other context, this man and the, the Samaritan uh, would have hated each other. Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies in those days. But this is the power of saying, what does it feel like to be them? What would I want someone to do if I were in their place? It humanizes people. We see that their needs are just as real and just as significant as mine. And when that happens, we cannot help but care for that person. But what happens when you start to care? What happens is you start to sacrifice. That's the third question. What if neighbors sacrifice? What if neighbors sacrifice? Let's look back at the passage starting in verse 34. It describes what the Samaritan did for the man on the side of the road. It says he went to him, which in and of itself is a risk. He could have been attacked. Uh, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. This is uh, kind of ancient first aid to sanitize and, and clean up the wound. He, then he put the man on his own donkey, which meant he would have been walking alongside. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. 
That, that's enough to pay for about uh, three or four weeks in the inn. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. That is the clincher. He doesn't say, you know what, two denarii, that's a, a few days uh, wages for me. So that's a really generous gift. And when it's out, that's, that's what I have. He said, no, it's open-ended. Now I'm going to cover whatever expense you need to make sure your needs are met. This is a significant sacrifice on the part of the Samaritan. But remember, the command Jesus is talking about is to love your neighbor as yourself. What would you do for you if you were in that situation, if you could? Now, I realize this kind of sacrifice is probably not something we are prepared to do for our neighbors right away. Many of us are still working on learning the names of our neighbors. We're not ready to pay their medical bills yet. But nevertheless, we've got to start somewhere. We've got to start with even simple ways, even if it's just the shallow end of the pool of saying, I'm going to do something for the people around me. An exercise I would recommend uh, doing this week is sitting down for 10 minutes, getting a blank piece of paper and, and actually brainstorming. You might even want to set a timer so you just keep going. Brainstorming all the different ways, simple ways, uh, 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 little ways to show that you care, kindness, to serve your neighbors around you. Now, maybe you want to do this with your family or with your community group. Uh, I did this uh, before th this message, and so I have my list. I'm going to share some of these with you to kind of get you jump-started. I'm sure you'll be able to think of even more. But here's some of the things you could do. If you hear someone mentioning that they're going on a, a trip, uh, offer to get their mail or their trash, or if you're feeling really sacrificial, to drive them to the airport. Uh, mow someone's lawn, especially if you see someone who is sick or elderly. Uh, rake their leaves. Uh, shovel, shovel their walk or their driveway. Clear snow from their car in the parking lot. Um, winter's coming, guys. It's sooner than you think. Um, we, we used to have a neighbor in that old neighborhood who had a blade on his truck. And he, he was amazing. St. George is what I'd call him during these times. He would come by and clear in 15 minutes every driveway on the block. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. You know, like Chicago winters will make you doubt the goodness of God. But a Christ follower with a plow restores your faith. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> if you have a garden, share the produce uh, of your garden. If you have tools, lend them out. Make sure people know, hey, if you need to borrow something, I got something. Or better yet, actually take your tools, show up with it, and say, how can I help? Uh, if a storm comes through, clear branches or, or bring your chainsaw, chop up a tree that fell. Uh, if people are sick, bring them soup. Uh, if someone has a new baby, bring them a meal and a pack of diapers. Uh, if you've got neighbors with kids, this is a great thing for a teenager to do. If you've got neighbors for kids, say, hey, can I watch your kids for like two hours so you can go out to dinner just and not have to worry about dealing with them? Uh, text people on your way to the grocery store. See if you can pick anything up for them. Um, uh, know what skills you have, okay? This is really important to actually know. Do you have any special skills that would be of advantage to your neighbors? Because let's face it, neighbors only want neighbors who have great skills. Nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills, computer hacking skills. Glad there are at least a few Napoleon Dynamite fans out there. Um, but if you're good with plumbing or electricity, if you can tutor in math or Spanish or chemistry, uh, if you're a mechanic, and you say, I can at least come over and look at your car to see if you need to take it in. I can tell you if there's a real problem or whatever. Um, I don't know if you saw on our uh, Facebook page, uh, the, there's a picture posted of a guy who had an espresso machine. And he said, I'm going to actually go out to the, the sidewalk and I'm going to give away free coffee. Uh, an easy way to serve and to love your neighbors. There's all sorts of ways that you can do this, that you can uh, do that. Brainstorm them so you know, so you're not thinking in the moment. You've already got some ideas ready at hand. And if you start with these simple kind of random act of kindness things, it really goes a long way. Uh, I, I know that it can sound cheesy to talk about, you know, doing random acts of kindness, but it's actually only cheesy if you're not doing it. You look at it from the outside and say, how big of a difference can that make? But when you start to do these small things, it, the, the way it, it changes your relationships, 
the way it improves your own satisfaction with your life, the way it puts you in a place where you're ready to speak into someone's life when they need a, a word of hope, to pray for someone, to, to be there for someone in the really serious things, it's amazing. Plus, if you ever wanna to get to the place where you actually do the big sacrificial things, you gotta flex those serving muscles day in and day out. And the small acts of service do actually lead to more significant ways of serving. When those next door neighbors moved in by us, it was just a, a few months later that the man's health took a turn for the worse. And he really didn't have very long to live. And so Michelle and I, we, we did what we could. You know, I mowed their lawn and we'd let, let the boy come over and, and be with us while they had to go to doctor's appointments and bring them a meal and, and, and simple stuff like that, but enough to say, hey, we're there for you. And uh, eventually our neighbor passed away and obviously it was incredibly devastating. But what was incredible was that because of what our neighbor Charlie had been doing, even before these next door neighbors moved in, the fact that he was trying to connect people and make sure people knew each other meant that there was already this network of people that when uh, our neighbors hit this crisis in their life, there were already people who were there saying, hey, we actually know how to care for people around us. So we could invite them to neighborhood gatherings. We were doing it about once a month at that point. So they had people to, to be around. Uh, Charlie taught the, the boy how to mow the lawn, how to use a lawnmower. There was a time when the pilot light on their furnace went out on a cold winter day. They didn't know what was wrong. So they called Dan, who was really handy from uh, down the street, and he came over to check it and, and fix it for them. And uh, George and Jeannie on the corner, they started uh, giving them rides because she didn't actually have a driver's license. And they were, he kind of took the, the boy under his wing and sort of uh, was talking with him and, and, and just being there for him. And this was what was amazing. We had been working to get to know each other and we were ready when the big thing happened. And it, and it wasn't just physical support. Uh, many of those neighbors were Christ followers. And so as they were over at their house, they could pray, they could listen, they can offer a word of hope and encouragement from God's word. The small things led to significant things. Often what you'll find also with this is that your neighbor starts serving you back. And this is actually really, really important. Most of the time when you are serving another person, it is not like the Good Samaritan and the man on the road. The man on the road could not help himself and could not do anything in return. It's most of the time, it's not like that. Most of the time, it's, it, it's a two-way street. It should not be one-sided when you're, you're serving another person. And a healthy relationship means that the person's gonna say, hey, what are your needs? And you start doing things for each other. It's reciprocal. In fact, sometimes it doesn't start with you serving your neighbors. It starts with you asking your neighbors to help you out with something. So I got a project going on or I need uh, to borrow something or could you, you know, uh, check my mail or whatever. It, you, you, you ask them to do something and it begins that two-way relationship. Sometimes it doesn't start by serving, neighbors serving each other. It actually starts with neighbors serving together. Uh, in this neighborhood, there was a stre stretch of kind of empty lots that had trees on it. It was uh, several uh, blocks long and it had these uh, just little patch of woods there. And it our neighbor, Charlie, again, uh, he went back there one time and he found a couch back there and some empty liquor bottles. And another time, uh, some teenagers in the middle of the night came and knocked on the door of his house and said, our friend is passed out back there and we don't know what to do. And so Charlie realized, he's like, this is not a, a safe situation. We've got to do something about it. So he rallied the neighborhood. He said, what do we do to, to clean this place up? And so we actually... Uh, went into those lots and we uh, started clearing out some space. We made a little uh, area where you could actually see and sit and put a little bench in there and made it a place where people would wanna hang out. We built a, a little bridge over uh, the, the ditch so that people could walk in there. And then we, uh, Charlie actually was like, I'm gonna teach the teenagers in the neighborhood how to use a chainsaw. They're gonna love it and they did. And they started clearing out walking paths. And we had several blocks of walking paths that actually connected to the prairie path. And so we, we made the space a place people would wanna be in rather than a place that was hidden. 
And it became a place where the neighborhood rallied around it. It became a, a place that we served together and a place that we got to know each other. And sometimes that's the way this begins. This is actually one of the things we want to do with our year-end gift this year. Uh, every year we take a year-end gift. And for most churches, the majority of money that comes in at the end of the year in the month of December, uh, th- that's what they use to uh, meet their budget. It's when most of the money comes in in a church. But around here, you guys are generous all the time, which means for our year-end gift, we can give most of it away to outside causes outside of our church. So this year, again, we are going to be giving away at least 70% of what we bring in in the year-end gift. And next week, or in the next month, we're going to be uh, unveiling some of the details of what that is. But I wanted to give you a sneak preview because it's related to this idea of loving our neighbors. Uh, we're going to call the year-end gift Neighbors in Need. And we're going to be raising money so that we can, will both allow us to serve our local neighbor, neighbors and serve with our neighbors. In order to serve our local neighbors, part of the money is going to go to special projects uh, related to our community impact partners at each of our campuses and different focus areas that we have to help vulnerable children, to help end human trafficking in our area. So we're going to uh, be doing some projects with them. But the other part of the money is going to go to uh, fund meals that we are going to pack with Feed My Starving Children. And our hope is to bring in enough money to do several hundred thousand meals together. And early in the new year, what we're going to do is we're actually going to pack those meals at our four campuses. We're going to invite uh, all of you, but also invite you to invite your neighbors to come and pack with us so that we can do something for people who need food uh, together. And that way, draws close to our neighbors to get to know them while doing something for the sake of people in need. So it's going to be really great. We're going to tell you more about this next month, but look forward to that because it's going to be a great way for you uh, not just to bless people with your money, but also uh, get to know your neighbors. Here's the big question, though, with this. With all of this serving stuff, how do we get to the point where we actually want to do it? I mean, it sounds wonderful when you hear about serving your neighbors. It sounds great when somebody else is doing it. Like Charlie, like, thank you for letting me tell your stories, Charlie, because, you know, you did all this amazing stuff. But what about me? Am I, am I do, how do I actually get to the place where I say, when I see a need, I want to do something about it? It actually goes back to remembering which character you are in this parable. Remember, we are the people on the side of the road. Spiritually speaking, this is us. We are the ones who are in need. We are the ones who are helpless. We are the ones who are in need of rescue. You know who the Samaritan is? You know who the hero is? It's Jesus. It's really interesting. Uh, While Jesus is having this conversation, he is actually on a road trip. The the book of Luke Luke is structured uh, as a a series of of journeys all the way to Jerusalem. Earlier in the book, just a chapter before, it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, on this journey, you know what he does? Jesus actually passes through Jericho, the the last place he goes before going to Jerusalem, which means he traveled on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, which is the same one that this story takes place on. Luke is really deliberate. He wants you to see that Jesus is on this same journey. Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? He's going to Jerusalem to do what the Good Samaritan did. He's going there so that he can bandage our wounds. He's going there so that he can bring us to a place of rest. He's going to Jerusalem to pay our debt no matter how much it costs him. He is going there to ensure that we get healed. He is going there to serve us in our state of deepest need. But Think about this. How is Jesus going to do all of that in Jerusalem? By taking our place on the side of the road. What happens to Jesus in Jerusalem? He is attacked. He is stripped. He is beaten. And he is left on the side of the road to die on a cross. This is what Jesus does. 
In order to meet our needs, he takes on our suffering and our pain. And when we see that, that is what transforms us into people who can actually serve our neighbors. When we realize our own helplessness, what it does is it melts our hearts towards people around us. We know that we are no better than anybody else. We're not looking down on anyone. We aren't the great heroic saviors and rescuers. We're just people in need. We know, we know what it means to be desperate and to say, will someone help me? And when we see the way Jesus loved us, the way he gave himself for us to provide everything that we need, it frees us. We can give ourselves away in service and sacrifice for others because we know that because he's loved us, we are secure. We have everything that we need. We aren't afraid to sacrifice because his sacrifice has provided for us. We can love our neighbors because he has first loved us. And you know what happens when we actually start to do it? We start to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and serve our neighbors. We realize it was the life we were meant to live. It's actually a life-giving way of living. We spend so much of our time curled in on ourselves, concerned about our own needs and fearful of what would happen if we give up too much. But it turns out this is, this is a way to die, not a way to live. What, the, what gives us life is when we look out and say, oh, let me love the God who has loved me and let me love people around me the way he has loved me. That is what gives life and brings fullness to us. So to answer the questions of this sermon, what if neighbors noticed? Well, people would suffer alone a lot less. What if neighbors cared? More people would know that they are loved by God and by others. What if neighbors sacrificed? Well, then the need for sacrifice would go down because the needs would be met. What would happen if we actually did this? People would flourish. We would reflect the character of Christ. Our lives, our neighborhoods, our world would look more like the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all this, all this is beyond us. It is impossible for us to pull this off on our own strength. God, we do not have hearts like you, but we know that you can give those hearts. And so we pray for that. We pray that you would help us see our neighbors, to, to, to notice their needs. That we'd be people who actually care, put ourselves in other people's shoes, and that we would be willing to serve and sacrifice for them. Give us the power to do that. We pray that even as we remember and look at the sacrifice of your son right now, that that would give us a sense of how much you've loved us and provided for us, and that would strengthen us so that we can love in that same way. We pray this in Jesus' name.